Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today, I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we're welcoming back a very special guest, Lost in Space artist, Mr. Ron Gross. Ron is an incredibly talented and prolific graphic artist who is skilled in both traditional and digital rendering techniques. Many of his beautiful creations employ a distinctive, hybrid production methodology that he personally developed. Ron's Lost in Space-related works include assorted box art illustrations for both Polar Lights and Mobius model kits dating back to 1998. Ron famously scratch-built his own 170th scale Jupiter II model that eventually became the design basis for the classic kit marketed by Polar Lights, thus filling the void for this decades-long-awaited product. Ron shared his novel scratch-building techniques with a wider audience, writing multiple articles for publications such as Scale Modeler, Fine Scale Modeler, and Sci-Fi and Fantasy Modeler. In association with Kevin Burns of Synthesis Entertainment, Ron has also designed the official 45th and 50th Lost in Space anniversary logos. Fans of the show are most familiar with his stunning, officially licensed calendars and poster art based on the original Irwin Allen television properties. Before we speak with him, a little background information on Mr. Gross. Ron grew up in Aurora, Illinois, and resides in the greater Chicago area to this day. After retiring from a distinguished career as a sales executive, Ron's been able to fully devote himself to his passion for creating art. When we spoke with Ron last time, we focused on his Lost in Space fandom, early sci-fi model building, and his second career as a graphic artist. Ron's still producing a steady stream of Lost in Space posters and calendars, but now he has a brand new project to share with us, a soon-to-be-released limited-edition deluxe series trading card set that features his own dazzling artwork, as well as a fascinating Lost in Space in-universe storyline. We're going to speak with Ron today about his new trading card set, delve a little deeper into his artwork, and get a sneak preview of the future Lost in Space and Irwin Allen projects on his agenda. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this compelling round two interview with the talented Lost in Space graphic artist and enthusiast, Mr. Ron Gross. Mr. Ron Gross, sir, welcome back to Alpha Control. Man, it is a pleasure to have you back on our podcast celebrating Irwin Allen's original Lost in Space. Well, thanks, Lane. I really appreciate it. But my first question to you is, uh, 
after my insistent rambling the first time around, you're actually willing to put up with me for another hour of this stuff. <laughs> oh man, that was not rambling. That was uh, that was podcast gold from my perspective. Oh. Your episode was one of our most popular episodes, so I'm excited to have you back on the show. But you know. Ron, it's been almost a year since we were last having one of these conversations, and I know you've been extremely busy. You've got me excited about this new project you're doing with one of our mutual friends. It's about to hit the street. Your oh, yes. new limited edition Lost in Space trading card set. I really want to hear about that. But before we deep dive into that, tell me what else have you been doing in the last year? Well, I mean, it's an ongoing flow of work, basically. Uh, you know, my goal has always been to try to dignify Lost in Space. I think that it deserves that kind of treatment. Hopefully that is reflected in some of my artwork. Oh, yeah. So we're just kind of going along the same lines. Now, we did have the Wonderfest convention recently. But that's always a great time. You missed one, my friend. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, as you know, I, my youngest was graduating from high school that weekend. It was a bad timing, but I'm keeping that one open for next year. I, I was sorry to miss it because I heard there was part two of a great B9 Robot Builders display. They had a, a much bigger venue there, and it was a, another success for those guys as well as yourself. Right. Then a, that entire what I call cutout section of dealer room A was devoted to the, the robots this time. And uh, it was organized by Norman Sockwell, who I thought did an excellent job. So we had, I think, eight or nine robots there this year. We had Tom Dotery with his cockpit set. And by the way, I never realized before that that's only an 80% scale, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm standing up by this thing. And it seems huge. I can about imagine what the real set was like, you know. Wow. So he did a spectacular job on that. And then, of course, uh, we had Marta there this year. Um, and uh, right. my table was situated right across from her. She's always uh, a spectacular guest. She was sponsored by my good friend, Steve Iverson, cool TV man. And uh, mm. that was a great time. And I noticed <laughs> there were a few people, one in particular, after the, the convention was over, kept posting online how thankful he was that we took such good care of Marta. <laughs> I thought to myself, <laughs> well, what, what do you think we were going to do? Feed her to the Cyclops or what, you know? <laughs> but, but, so no, Marta's fine, and uh, hopefully she'll be back yeah. at some point. But uh, no, that was a great time. And next year we like to get you and Kurt there. We're also going to have to Shanghai Mark Myers because every year I I uh, ask him to go, and I haven't gotten a, an acceptance on that yet. But maybe you can help me out with that when the time comes. I will do my best. No, you won't have to twist my arm to go back to Wonderfest. 2018 was my first experience going there or any similar type, you know, sci-fi fantasy convention. And I thought it was great. It was especially nice because the focus there is on models and artwork. And they have that big competition room where people put on display all of their creations, which is great. And just walking through the dealer room with all those kits, I was sitting there, you know, I really need to win the lottery because I love all these kids. I don't really build models anymore, but I would buy them and then ship them off to yeah, well, <laughs> ship no them kidding. off to Mark Myers to make. Well, yeah, there's <laughs> you know? no one else I'd ship anything off to. I'll tell you, he's the man at this point in time. So he really is. Yeah, but the uh, the model contest. I'll, I'll remark that you've got modelers from all over the world. Some of the best modelers in the world who participate in the show. I mean, it's not the biggest show out there. It's not like a Comic Con or anything like that, but. It's a smaller, more intimate sort of uh, atmosphere. But boy, I'll tell you, that's a must-go-to every year. Absolutely. 
Right. And it's not that far away from where we are. So that's convenient for us. So what else has been going on? Obviously, you're plugging away at your artwork, I see. And I guess we can expect those 2020 calendars to be available or, or are they already out, Ron? They're out right now. I actually had those at Wonderfest. By, I know it's early. I mean, it's a whole, you know, six months, six, seven months before you can start using it. But I always feel like it's important to get that out early so that we can have it for the Wonderfest convention. So those are out and they're available on my website right now as we speak. I can't wait. I'm sure you've got some nice new uh, specific art pieces that you... Uh... Yeah. Well, here again, continuing along the same lines that I was before, I'll, I'll give you a list of the, the pieces that were new at Wonderfest this year, okay? Sure. Uh, so that means I did them within a time frame of the close of the last Wonderfest to the opening of this one. And uh, they are the Jupiter 2 flying past the pinnacle, Ooh. the chariot on the raging sea. That that one, the chariot on the sea, I got a huge response from. That was very popular. Then the, the one with the monster plants with Marta. I mean, mm. how could I not have that one there, right? That's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, she's the guest, and uh, I gave her a few of those to sign, and uh, that turned out to be a real success. And the aerial encounter with the uh, giant. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. that is so cool. The never seen in an episode or anywhere, right? Yeah. But yeah. but we know it and exists. Exactly. And there's a lesson to be learned there because that was a request by uh, Dan Schroeder. Now, if you're a guy like Dan who has bought every single one of my posters <laughs> and you make a request, chances are I'm going to take it seriously. So mm -hmm. uh, hint, hint, you know, if mm -hmm. you support me, then I'll, I'll try to find a way to support you. If it's within the realm of what I'm trying to achieve. And sure. of course, that's right up my alley. I mean, I love that stuff that in this case, it was actually filmed, but not used, you know, other scenes that were planned, but never filmed. Yeah. The next one is the giant attacking the ship. That's interesting because that was in the, in the script for there were giants in the earth. There was a scene of the giant attacking the Jupiter two. There was actually a 10-foot Jupiter II that they constructed for a two-fold purpose, one of the reasons being for that scene. The other one it had a chariot ramp, okay? That, I think, the idea they abandoned because it would just look so obvious seeing the chariot fly out of that thing that nothing would ever fit, you know? So right. wiser heads prevailed there. But the 10-foot Jupiter II apparently was built. Uh, I've heard that it's in a private collection awaiting restoration. If all that is true, that's really fantastic news. But it was never used in the show, or at least I thought it wasn't, until somebody put a thread up on one of the uh, Facebook forums right. about a year ago. It was, I think it was Ron Nastrom who was a, does some really fine detective work. And he indicated that it was used in a distant shot in one of the second season episodes, and I forgot which one that was. But if he's right about that, that's another hidden piece of Boston space history, if you will. Yeah, I think I could be wrong about this, and I'm sure someone will fact check me on this because <laughs> they always do. But uh, I want to say that when that 10-foot model appeared in the background, nestled in between the some of the cycloramas at the end of the stage and those foreground pieces that they had for the sand dunes as a, a nod towards the Jupiter 2 being in the distance. And I want to say it was from that second season episode the girl from the green dimension, but I could be wrong about that. It's one of those. I think you might be right. That that rings a bell. I have to go back to that thread. Maybe I can, sure. maybe Ryan will chime in and, and he'll confirm that. Or, but let me uh, go on with the description of this piece. Obviously, I keep talking about how I usually use photos of my personal scratch bill Jupiter 2 for my artwork, but I didn't do that this time. I decided to use that full-scale mock-up version of the ship just because it has such an iconic look in this case, I feel. Mm -hmm. you know, We didn't see that pullback shot uh, very much. I think we saw it up through the episode of the Oasis, and then after that, we didn't see it again. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, as a kid, I'm starting to think, is my memory correct here? Did it even have a dome? Because we never saw it again, you know, because the way they built the external set did not include the dome. The use of the uh, full-scale mock-up with the dirt built up around it was basically an interim solution. Right. So I thought to myself, um, did it even have a dome? And then some of these toys came out from Mattel with, you know, the switch and go and the rotojet gun that showed images of the ship without a dome <laughs> so but then lo and behold yeah. we, we got the uh, trading card set from tops and uh, card number 26 shows the ship with a dome so due to all those factors i always felt that that particular look was somewhat iconic and i wanted to convey that that look of the gum card number 26 for that piece so i think that was the right choice oh yeah now i have seen all of these artwork pieces you've been kind enough to share some of them before you were willing to share them on your facebook page and everything and they are awesome there's a running theme in your artwork ron and that is what might have been that's what i'm yeah. sensing you have a you have a real talent for picking that particular thread and running with it. And I think it's one of those things that makes your artwork so iconic. Not just the great renderings that you do, but the fact that you're you're touching on things that all of us hardcore Lost in Space fans have asked ourselves, oh, what if this? Right, what if right. that? Like the scene of the giant attacking the Jupiter 2. That would have been... Uh, that would have been oh, a great man. thing to see. Well, well, yeah, I, I'll also say this, uh, Lane. I mentioned this on my Facebook page, but when I did that artwork, there was another reason for it. And there was a project I did in eighth grade art class. This would have been during the third season of Lost in Space. That tells you how old I am. <laughs> and every quarter they would have us do, quote, your own creation. So what I did was I created a paper mache base and I took the giant from the Aurora kit and mounted it on that. Mm. Then I created a simple Jupiter 2 out of cardboard cutouts, basically concentric circles. If you make a slit, you can draw it into a conic section. Sure. And so I formed the sections for the uh, roof and the upper hull that way, got them to fit together, then detailed the uh, windows. The top dome was one of those little trinket dispenser containers, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I took that thing to class lane, and I, I swear to God, I mean, I, everyone was just agape. They just were looking at that thing all day long. Teacher loved it, too. And so this artwork is kind of a tribute to that project way back when. And if you're going to ask me if I still have it, I w what do you think the answer is? <laughs> well, I was going to say yes, because I think you're the kind of guy that keeps everything when it <laughs> comes to your artwork. You know, but you tell us. In this case, though, you know. Know, after a few moves, etc., it's flattened like a pancake. So I do oh. have it, but it looks like the giant got it. <laughs> uh. The giant was a successful in attacking the ship because it's pretty much demolished. Oh man! But I do have. I don't have the heart to throw it away. You know, that was my first Jupiter too. So no. that's going to stay right where it is. Uh. In, in its dilapidated condition, it's going to stay there. Oh, that's great. And what a great story. I think that's a cool thing about you and your artwork, Ron, is so much of it is informed not just by your love for the show, but, you know, memories from growing up. And you had an interest at this from an early age. So it, it really does inform what you do, I think. Right. Well, that's true. Yeah. Well, listen, let me thank you, too. Last year, we collaborated on a little project for the podcast at my request. Oh, yes. Well, collaborated is a little bit of a strong term because basically you <laughs> you did everything. But I wanted to produce these promo postcards that I could leave around. I was planning on going to the Super Mega Fest to meet the cast members and everything. And you were gracious enough to donate one of your iconic artwork pieces for one side. And then you cleaned up my little uh, homemade podcast logo on the other side. And it was a real success. I 
I must have passed out over a thousand of those things. And I'll keep doing that if I get back to some of those conventions. And for sure, I'll bring some with me at Wonderfest. But I think I got a lot of positive feedback from that. And it's in no short measure due to the beautiful artwork you did. And thank you so much for donating your time to that. It was it was really great. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I, I think your podcast is a, is a really quality product. I think you and Kurt have a chemistry that really brings a lot to the show. And obviously, you're people of integrity and uh, you have a lot of fun with this stuff. We're all fans. So what's not to like, you know? Yeah. Well, it's a good lead in to the next topic that I want to discuss with you. And of course, I teased this earlier, and that's your brand new officially licensed limited edition Lost in Space trading card set, which you're doing in collaboration with our mutual friend, my trusty co-host, Kurt Kirsteiner. Now, some of the listeners may know that Kurt has a very successful business called Monster Wax, producing collectible trading card sets, which, as the name suggests, have a monster or horror theme, that sort of thing. Now, if I remember correctly, it was his idea to do this promo card for our podcast, and that came out so well, thanks to your great assistance, that I think that was really the genesis that started your collaboration on the card set. But you shared with me some time ago, this is something you've wanted to do for a while, right? Absolutely. It's really kind of funny how this all worked out, Lane, because I was planning to do a card set, but I had absolutely no idea how to go about it. You know, being an artist and everything, I can produce the graphics, but you need some marketing expertise. Mm -hmm. It has to be a collaborative effort. That's just the only way it can be done. I received a phone call one afternoon from uh, Derek Tilgis, that's Kevin Burns' assistant, who asked me to uh, submit some of my artwork for another trading card set that they were going to do. And I thought, well, <laughs> that's the end of that because they want to do something else with it. And I expressed that to him. I said, I was thinking about coming out with my own card set at some point. And he said, well, go ahead. <laughs> you know? oh. He says, this doesn't preclude that at all. So uh, I guess they did a, a nine-card uh, subset of this other trading card set put out by Rittenhouse, I believe it was. But, you know, the way this came about with Kurt is listening to the last time we got together with the podcast interview. We got on the subject of trading cards. Mm -hmm. You happened to mention during the dialogue that Kurt uh, did that. But anyway, uh, during the playback, I heard you mention that, and I thought to myself, well, holy crap, Batman, there's my ticket right there. <laughs> mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, one thing led to another. I got a hold of Kurt, and we uh, created a partnership, and uh, the results hopefully will speak for themselves, but we'll, that remains to be seen. But it was a, a long, uh, enduring labor of love. About six months it took to put this together. Oh, man. Well, yes, I know. I got some of the behind-the-scenes details talking to both you and Kurt as the process went along. And I, having gotten a sneak preview of the card set, can tell the folks out there they are going to really love this set. There's a lot to dive into it. But give us an overview of the set. What are the folks out there going to get with the Ron Gross Lost in Space card set? Well, let's start with a basic comparison, first of all. This set is designed to emulate the look of the original Topps trading card set. Mm -hmm. That was the inspiration for this set, okay? Sort of an homage. Yeah. For example, I use an eighth-inch white border, which is almost never done on cards today because it you know, takes up some of the space. But the original Topps cards had that, so I put it in as well. Mm -hmm. The uh, fonts are similar. The uh, graphics are somewhat similar. The layout is similar. Uh, it's not an exact copy, but the Topps card set definitely uh, was the inspiration for the design I chose for the, this card set. Of course, mine is in full color. Sure. So what does it include? Well, it includes what they call a base card set of 45 cards, and they basically tell a story. We'll get into that in just a few minutes. And then there are three subsets of nine cards each. And the subjects for those subsets are 
cast members, models and cover art, and other fantasy worlds. Mm. Now, that's, the first one is self-explanatory. The models and cover art gives me an opportunity to display some modeling work that I've done. Also, I have one there by Mark Myers and uh, tie it all together with uh, oh. uh, some of the box art I did for Mobius in years past. Great. The reason why the number nine is chosen for the subsets is because a lot of collectors will buy these transparent leaflets to display cards in. Oh, yes. And they hold nine cards per page, basically. So that was why everything is in multiples of nine. So we have 45 base cards. We have three subsets of nine cards each. We also have nine stickers. Oh. Now, what would a card set be without stickers, right? <laughs> you bet. Then Kurt talked me into doing a series of metal cards. Oh. And uh, they're formatted the same way as the stickers, artistically speaking, uh, graphically speaking, but they're processed differently into metal cards. So we have six of those because they're somewhat expensive to produce. Sure. And then we have three promo cards. But the promo cards include checklists and also he wanted a bio from me, which I was reluctant to give, but I guess that's what we do in these cases, right? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So that's basically what the set consists of. Now, let's talk about what it covers. The base card set of uh, 45 cards will emphasize the story that is told primarily by the early episodes of the series. Okay. Obviously, the first five, this should have been the first six. We discussed that before. The sixth title of the original story arc was dropped. I've managed to reinsert it <laughs> in my own way. We'll, we'll get into that in just a few minutes. Yeah. Uh -huh. But, you know, it includes other episodes as well. Uh, Lane, I always thought that about two-thirds of the first season was really first class, really high quality. The, the first five episodes are in a class by themselves, in my opinion. Sure. But there are other episodes that uh, are kind of right up there, really, really touching that, that same threshold. Mm -hmm. It's funny, when you get past the Keeper, then we start to delve into the, more of the fantasy themes, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Right. And coincidentally, that's exactly when Batman came on the air, by the way. Right. <laughs> funny how those things work out, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so let me tell you what's in it. And, sure. And also what isn't in it and, and the reasons for that, okay? Okay. I have the first five represented. I have uh, several other episodes of the first season represented. Um, there are actually a total of 14 episodes covered in the base set. Oh, wow. And, yeah, including the unaired pilot. Another nine episodes are actually covered by the stickers and the metal cards. And we actually cover all three seasons to some degree. Interesting. Yeah, the stickers and metal cards are kind of all over the place. You know, they're mm -hmm. not really related to the, to the main storyline, but uh, I thought that was important. Sure. But back to the uh, base card set. There are... Um, Two episodes from the first season that I wanted to include, but I didn't. And there's a reason for it. And they are uh, Return from Outer Space and uh, The Sky is Falling. Now, okay. Return from Outer Space, you can't have that one unless you have The Sky is Falling because it's predicated on that Toron matter transfer unit, right? That's true, yes, yes. So that one is out the window if we don't have Sky is Falling. No, why don't we have The Sky is Falling? Well, because the fact is that the wardrobe used for these aliens, the alien visitors, was exactly the same wardrobe used by another group of aliens that I did want to include. Ah. And we're talking about the two uh, aliens who popped up at the end of the honored pilot. Okay. Right. So astute observers will notice that that is exactly the same costume. Right. Okay. I really wanted to, to create kind of an interline, including elements of the honored pilot. Uh, so it was difficult to include both. So I'm Regretfully had to leave those two out. I did include a couple of post-Keeper episodes, which I thought were important. One was Follow the Leader, which I think is essential. You have to have that one. Great story. Right. The other one that I included but as a uh, metal card, but not as in the main storyline, is War of the Robots. Mm -hmm. 
I wanted to get that in there somehow because it's it's a quality episode. Um, okay. Even there with War of the Robots, as good as it was, we start to see uh, elements of fantasy popping in. For example, some of the dialogue, like when when he goes, uh, uh, "You are even more stupid than I first computed." I mean, right, right. That's an Emmy Award winning line if I ever heard one. <laughs> you know, but but I still wanted to include that. I thought that was a quality episode. So that's that's a, basically a, represented as a metal card. But back to the base card set, the integration of elements of the pilot with the series was my goal. There was so much rich content in the pilot script that didn't even make it in the pilot, for example, that I really thought this needs to be acknowledged. For example, um, in the pilot script, when they were in the uh, Lost City ruins, the Dead Dead City ruins, if you will, and they they noticed the uh, hieroglyphics. Oh, yes. You can see that one of the hieroglyphics, this is actually in the film, is a giant. Right. The uh, entire premise of the show was to be based on a conflict between an indigenous race and these 40-foot giants, with the Robinsons caught in the middle of the conflict. And this conflict had been going on for millennia. That's really a cool concept, if you think about it. Oh, yes, yes. But uh, the pilot script actually explained it even further, because they talked about the hieroglyphics serving as a uh, an alien medium. If you take your hand across the hieroglyphics, an alien medium would pop in and translate for you. Mm. And some of this content is really, really rich. For example, let me read you a couple of lines here. In one case, I think it was Judy who did this in the pilot script. Uh, this is what the translation was. I am Opu, king of the illuminated ones that dwell in the high regions, who builded this palace for the spirit of dreadful joy. And then later on, Don West does the same thing. Mm. And what he gets is this. And in the long night of frozen silence, they saw fit to visit their evil unto my tribe and even unto our own sacred person and humbled us and scattered us. I mean, this is really cool, rich content, which if it had been explored, mm. I think would have made for some great storylines, you know. Oh, yeah. I love the whole concept of the hieroglyphics having almost like an ESP-style communication medium. Yes. That is really interesting. I wish they had kept that one in the story or in the original pilot. But uh, Well, you know, the, the whole sequence was only, it was less than 10 minutes long in the Lost City, or Dead City Ruins, if you, however you want to describe it. Personally, I think it was the single best segment of the entire series. Mm. I love that whole concept. To me, that's like Halloween on steroids. I mean, and it's very uh, Kevin Burns-esque with ancient aliens. Think about it, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a coincidence, but it's uh, it's really very, very well done. Can I ask this question? Because I, I think I know the answer to this, but I want clarification on this, and I think you'd be the right person to ask. Go ahead. Are those two aliens that we see at the end of No Place to Hide, are those supposed to be the illuminated ones that are spoken of in that line you just read? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, I wasn't sure what to exactly call them, but almost like an Illuminati race, huh? Yeah, sort of. I mean, they are the descendants of the culture that built the Lost City, okay? Mm. And that's fully articulated in the script itself, by the way. Interesting. It, isn't it, though? And yeah. the thing is, too, the whole idea of that uh, culture, um, if you examine, for example, uh, the pendant, the pendant shows a young prince. What does that tell you? Well, that means they re revere their ancestors. And there's this whole concept of that right. ongoing uh, situation that has gone on for all this time with the giants having scattered them all over the place. And, and it's possible, by the way, the pendant had nothing to do with it. It could have been that Irwin Allen thought, well, throw anything on them because they're not going to see the detail anyway, <laughs> you know, but uh, it's still kind of fun to speculate about these things. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, I love that. Yeah. I hope you're enjoying our latest interview with artist Ron Gross as much as I am. 
Ron's artwork is a beautiful celebration of his talent and Lost in Space fandom. That devotion really shines through when you listen to him. He's got more to share about his artwork, Erwin Allen, and much more. So sit tight for part two of our second interview with Lost in Space artist, Ron Gross. So the whole point here was to try to uh, integrate the unaired pilot into the uh, early episodes, kind of interweave the two stories into a um, coherent whole, um, a seamless coherent whole. And it's not that hard to do, really. I mean, uh, you know, the first five episodes were based on the pilot. And to add these additional elements uh, for the sake of interest is kind of a natural thing to me. This all goes back to, you know, my desire for this. I got to tell you, Lane, still, it goes back to that promo commercial <laughs> that they, they aired in the summer of 65, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, they showed the aliens at the end of the commercial. The two aliens who come up from beyond the bush and, and uh, were in the promo commercial back in, uh, in 1965, but we never saw them in the series. And so um, that darn promo uh, commercial, you know what? I, I'm still pissed about that 54 years later. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, you know, you can't, you can't show that to an 11 year old kid and then not deliver. I mean, screw that. Right. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> it was such a tease, you know, and you sat there kept thinking, well, all right, they're going to show these, maybe this episode, maybe this episode. Yeah. And they never, right. they never reemerged. And I think I didn't you make a comment that would have been a great comeback for the episode "The Lost Civilization" if it had been those illuminated aliens that we saw in the uh, unaired pilot. That would yes, cool. I did. Uh, I certainly did. But uh, you know, by that time we were pretty firmly entrenched into the uh, more fantasy-oriented stories. And by the way, that was was a fair episode. I mean, I didn't care that much for the the princess aspect of it, but I understand that at that point we kind of got into the fairy tale morale sort of uh, syndrome, and uh, that's sure. the way it was, you know. Sure. So, but it would have been a good a good opportunity to introduce them at that point. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. But you know, it never happened. I guess one offsetting plus to that lane would be I doubt if we would have had invaders from the fifth dimension if we had had the uh, pilot aliens in the show because they're just too similar. Okay. Okay. You know. The makeup was uh, based on that. It was modified somewhat with a single nostril and no mouth and what is probably a long black robe in lieu of the uh, costume that you saw. with a, It looks like a narrow jacket to me. You know? right. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so it's, you know, and that was a great episode. Uh, it had a certain atmosphere to it. Obviously, I would hate to lose that, um, but it was a one-off. It wasn't an ongoing story thread that we would have seen throughout the, uh, you know, most of the first season if the original plan had been intact. So, uh, and then to make matters worse, they created Tops gum card number two, which had that alien in it, uh, you know, and then when the internet finally was uh, in full bloom, we see all these other images of those pilot aliens that were behind the scenes shots that were shot apparently. Yeah. What is that? Uh, during, top, that Tops uh, card number two, doesn't it have a caption, something like the alien is watching or something to that? Aliens effect? are listening. And aliens the, the premise listening. behind that, yeah, the whole, the whole premise behind that was that uh, they were Smith's secret alien allies. And of course, the, I got to say the Tops cards, you know, the dialogue made no sense at all because uh, <laughs> the cards themselves were beautiful, but the dialogue was almost entirely ad-libbed. I mean, it was, it's kind of a curious thing because some of the elements are correct. The launch date is correct, you know, 
but the actual storyline, it, it's as if somebody somebody gave you a stack of cards and said, okay, write a story about this, you know? Yeah. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. I remember as a kid, what I used to do was simply ignore the backs of the cards and order them correctly. Like the, the one that's where uh, Maureen is uh, in her space helmet and the caption is, where is Penny? Well, she's sure not out in space with you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so... Um, they took some liberties with that as a kid. I didn't, I didn't really care. I just wanted those, those cars were so cool, but I'm uh, getting off on tangents here. No, no, I will say I, this. I got you off on a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that was the goal to kind of interweave these things. By the way, I'll, this thought just popped into my head. There was a thread on Facebook a few years ago and people were speculating on who played that alien. You can't really see the, the second one that well at all, but the first guy, with a profile uh, at the end of the honor pilot, also in the top scum cards, number two, um, who might have played him? And somebody speculated it could be a guy named uh, Harry Bartell, mm. uh, who kind of has the right look and the right stature. He played in a lot of Westerns, for example. But I don't think so because the profile doesn't match. He doesn't have the right nose. <laughs> oh. So I thought to myself, well, there's another actor who has the kind of the same basic look as Harry Bartell in terms of facial features without the profile taken into account. And that would be Phil Leeds, the guy who played Blackie on, uh, on Dick Van Dyke's show. That was uh, Buddy's evil brother. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember uh, him. Yeah, remember him? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I thought I thought it might be him. And then I got to thinking just a few weeks ago, I was thinking, Lane, what if it was someone else entirely and we're overlooking the obvious? Because there was another actor who had that same profile look, uh, the kind of dark eyes, who actually did appear in an episode of Lost in Space. And he appeared in the third season episode. It was called The Flaming Planet. And that would be Abraham Sofair. Oh. Who played it. Think about that. He has the look. It's the right stature. Um, oh, yes, yes. And think about that classical voice that he had. Uh, and I've seen him in other roles, too. You know, he's a really good actor. If he were the one playing that part of the alien pilot, that could have been for some great interaction. But it was just never meant to be. Just, no. I don't think anybody will ever know for sure. The uh, responses to that thread were, uh, you know, quite extensive, actually. But no, we didn't come up with any firm conclusions. Kevin may know. He might call me after this, after he listens to this and says, you're all wrong. You know, this is who it was. I don't know. But anyway, that's my latest and greatest theory of who might have played that role for whatever it's worth. But nevertheless, uh, just an interesting aside, I thought there. Oh, yeah. Well, it's very interesting to me that you've been able to weave this theme into your card set there, 45 cards that are telling an ongoing story. Right. As I said, again, you've been kind enough to share the proof set before these things go to print with me. So I've gotten a chance to see the front and the back sides. And that's what mm -hmm. you do. It's not just the artwork. It's the reverse tech side of these that tell the story, which is kind of interesting. Right. Let's talk about that. But first, tell me, is there a challenge from an artistic standpoint to doing trading cards versus poster? or calendars? Not really. I mean, in my case, Lane, I, I always envisioned my posters as being able to be segmented because the way I covered the early episodes with my posters, sometimes some of them are collages, some of them are prone to being segmented. Uh, in some cases, I just did new artwork. I spared no expense on this. If, if a segmented version of a poster didn't fill the bill, I did new artwork, okay? mm. especially with the follow the leader thing. Obviously, I don't have a poster based on that yet right, <laughs> okay. right it's coming and it'll be an expanded version by the way i cropped it for the uh the card i thought it should be a vertical orientation there's a lot more to that composition than you'll see in the card which we'll uh, 
we'll release as a poster at some point down the road. And by the way, I didn't cover all primary subjects. I described everything, but I just didn't have the artwork to cover every major event. I'm somewhat regretful about that, but you know, at some point you just have to say, let's go with what we've got because this could go on forever, you know? Right, right. So, right. Uh, so I, we decided to go with the 45 base cards and the three subsets of uh, additional cards and the stickers and metal cards. That really produces a really nice ensemble, I think. Oh, it absolutely does. What about the challenge of writing the storyline? As far as writing the uh, text was concerned, that's something that Kurt would usually do. I told him I thought I should do it because I know the show so well. Okay, uh, and I was a little concerned about that, Lane, because the writing that I've done in the past—I've been published, you know, several times—but they've all been technical articles on scale modeling, scratch building, etc. And every time I write something, it sounds like it's—it comes out something like a scientific journal of some kind. You know, mm-hmm. there's very little heart to it. So I was concerned about that, but I, I think that we pulled it off okay. Another trick here was to make it concise. I mean, you've got a, a lot of material to cover there. You've got 45 cards to describe it. You've got a fixed box area to make this text fit. There's where a lot of the work comes in. It was a ton of work, but it was really gratifying. Oh, I can tell. <laughs> I can tell you're very excited about this. And I could tell from perusing the set that you put your all into it. And you shouldn't deprecate yourself too much because the story that you wrote is very compelling. And it does a lot of interesting things. You capture some very Ron Gross-esque threads throughout this. And there's one I'm not sure what that means. Oh, <laughs> it's like what we talk, <laughs> talked about before. It's pulling on that thread of what might have been. I mean, you're basing it on things that we actually saw in the show, scenes, vignettes, and everything. But you're adding to it, and you're telling a little bit of a deeper story. Yeah, thank you, Lane. But you know, I've often wondered about that. I've had thoughts about that whole situation about longing for something that we didn't quite get enough of or didn't have. And that could be the impetus for perpetuating this interest in Lost in Space, because that show is a glowing example of what I just described. You know, and I keep thinking of Spock's line at the end of the episodes, Amok Time from Star Trek, when he said, you will find that having is not so pleasant a thing as wanting. Mm. It is not logical, but it is often true. It's true. It's true. Think about that. Think about that. So for me anyway, Lane, I got to tell you, for me, the longing for some of these things that were promised but not delivered or not delivered in full measure in terms of retaining the original uh, dramatic premise of the series, that's what has driven me all these years to keep going. And I'm finally able to pull it all together with this licensed material I'm putting out. And I'm just so grateful to uh, Kevin for giving me that opportunity. Yeah. Well, we're all grateful for it. And we're grateful that you got the chance to do it. Can we take just a minute or two to talk about one particular card you've got? We could spend a lot of time on all of these cards, but we'll leave them wanting a little bit more of the folks okay. out there. When they I'll bet it's the number 33. Am I, am I right? Is it number uh, 33? You guessed it. You guessed it. Now, this one, <laughs> this one is Ron Gross to the extreme here. Now, tell us, what's that card called and what are we hinting at here? It's called a Sinister Collaboration. And that was a name change, by the way. The first name... I can't tell you the first title, it'll give it away if I do. But let me just backtrack a little bit and say this. Kevin and Derek did not want me to rewrite the script, okay? It's okay to include elements that were planned but not included. It's okay to include deleted scenes, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't want me to get overly speculative on anything. Uh, like I did, for example, when I did the artwork for The Keeper Meets Invaders from the Fifth Dimension. That That has a place for the artwork I do, but not for telling the story it was as it was originally intended okay but with this one card they let me stretch just a little bit because there had to be an explanation for tying two things together 
uh, two elements of the series, one episode and uh, uh, something else. And so I came up with this idea. And uh, I, I guess if I say too much more, I'll give it away. But card number 33 is the one card where they let me stretch a little bit. And uh, I guess we'll just leave it there unless you have more questions that I may or may not be able to answer. <laughs> no, I think that's pretty good. It's tying together some elements you sort of hinted at earlier when we talked about uh, <laughs> things that weren't included. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, very cool. If you love Ron's calendars and posters, you're going to be crazy for this card set. We're all eagerly awaiting it. And speaking of that, Ron, when can we expect these to hit the street? And what sort of pricing and availability would you like to share with the listeners? Well, we're targeting uh, sometime, maybe late November, early December as a release date. Uh, that should be around the same time that the Netflix season two starts. That would be kind of a nice tie-in, you know. Mm-hmm. As far as how it's going to be offered, it's going to be offered in several different versions. And as I described this to you, Elaine, nothing is really finalized quite yet. So I'm going to speak in generalities here, if that's okay. Sure. You could buy just a basic stack of 45 cards, just a base set, for 20 bucks. That's one option. Another option is to buy, you know, uh, let me describe it this way. You know, when you, uh, as a kid, when you go into a drugstore or a dime store and you see the cards on the counter and they're in a display box, you know, you pick out the packs from the display box, you buy the packs, right? Sure. We're going to give people an opportunity to buy the whole damn box. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the assignments for this project was to create a box design. Uh, So Kurt sent me a template for that. And I used the artwork from the poster that I call From Earth to the Unknown, because that covers it very nicely. All the elements of the pilot plus Dr. Smith and the robot. And uh, so this box will be adorned with that particular artwork. Also some other snippets on the sides from other posters. And when I said this to Kurt and he called me back and he said to me, you know what, Ron, that reminds me so much of an old Aurora model kit. Mm. And I said to him, I said to him, man, you just made my day because that was exactly what I was going for. So you you have an opportunity to buy the entire box with uh, packs of cards and there are going to be wrappers. I designed a wrapper. There will be gum in in these packs. <laughs> it's called cosmic gum. Yeah. Okay, it's not not bazooka. I think they're out of business now. <laughs> no. uh, but Kurt tells me that cosmic gum is delicious. Uh, I don't know anything about cosmic gum, but that's what's going to be inside these packs. So you can buy it that way. And there are a couple of different versions for the uh, box set, and one is priced as low as around sixty bucks. Wow. There are deluxe versions that include all the metal cards and stickers, and they're going to be a lot more than that. But, you know, keep your eye on Kurt's website. I'm sure you guys will be talking more about this when the time uh, draws nigh, that uh, he'll be able to give you all the details at that time. Absolutely. But it was a lot of fun. And uh, I'll tell you, that's where his expertise came into play, because he knows how to market this stuff. He knows how to present it. And it was just a sheer joy designing the box and the the wrapper. Uh, The wrapper is really cool, by the way. It shows the Lost in Space logo like the top series wrapper did but there's more to it than just that i have an alien on there too i won't tell you which one it is but he's he's holding up the logo okay so you can about imagine what that might be oh that's awesome that is great oh yes we're going full old school with this we got the box we got the wrappers we've even got the gum so folks you're gonna want this when it comes (laughs) out so yes pricing to be determined i guess is the best way but it's going to be affordable for folks out there and there's options you can uh, mix and match right 
pick the price point. I mean, the metal cards are expensive. That's what adds to the cost. There's going to be a super deluxe set with everything, you know, mm. and I don't know exactly how that's going to be priced, but uh, that's going to be up to Kurt. I supplied him with the artwork. And now he has to take the mantle and we'll go from there. So Yeah. Well, we're waiting with bated breath. Can't wait for that. That's going to be awesome. And yes, we will be trumpeting that as we get closer to the release date. So great. Oh, Ron, I'm so proud for you guys. This is something to really celebrate. Well, I so. got to say too, Kurt has been a tremendous partner. I mean, uh, he knows his trade, believe me. He uh, he knows what he's doing. Uh, he's pointed out a few things to me that I didn't see and uh, as we went through this whole process. So it's been a, just a very good, genuine, collaborative effort. Yeah. Well, I knew you guys would hit it off. <laughs> We're all kind of cut from the same cloth here, so that's good to yeah. hear. Well, Ron, I want to revisit something that we started discussing last time and see if we can get just a little bit more insight from you. And that's a deeper discussion of the Ron Gross aesthetic. Your artwork is so iconic. It's so unique. But can you give us some more insight into what sets your artwork apart? Well, what sets it apart from the people who do the colorizations, for example, is the fact that my artwork does indeed include an element of physical rendering, good old-fashioned physical rendering. And I insist on that. I mean, uh, it's in my artwork in various degrees. In some cases, uh, you know, like the box art for the space pod, that was just plain old rendering. I mean, but uh, one possible downside to that process, although it's a lot easier for me because it's, it's, uh, you know, you avoid the mess. If I can render something uh, over the top of a photo, for example, with a blended colored pencil and then scan it and and, uh, scan it back in and work it into a composition, which is what I described the first time, uh, that's a hell of a lot uh, easier to do and a lot less messy than getting out the oil colors, which is what I did for years. You know, but one one downside, possible downside, is that it does tend to create kind of a photographic look to it. Uh, And, you know, I I got to thinking about that one day, but even when I do something totally the old-fashioned way, like that George Reeves uh, tribute I did with Superman, for example, Mm -hmm. it still comes out looking like a photograph. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, that's basically something I've I've learned to own. Uh, You know, when you're in art school, there are basically two things you never want to hear. Number one, quote, it looks just like a photo, all right? Number two, this particular area is very successful because that implies that it doesn't flow as a coherent whole, all right? Uh, Yet it's kind of a backhanded compliment, in other words. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the first one, you know, I've tried to loosen up and free up my style. It just isn't in my makeup lane. I mean, you know, I don't know if it's because I have a technical background, you know, being a math major and all that stuff like we discussed the first time. I don't know what it is, but I've learned to embrace it rather than try to fight it. So my stuff's going to look, going to have this photorealistic look, and that's the way it is. You know, the process, though, is somewhat unique, and I don't, don't think anyone else is employing it at this point, but that's my trademark, and uh, it's been successful, and I'm sticking with it. Well, what do those art school guys know anyway? No, <laughs> I think you know, the, the whole deal about photorealistic, you know, I, I just... Well, you know, with the, the, they talk about expression. If, if expression can be defined as being an expression of one's personality, that type style is for me. Absolutely. That does, def- that does define what I'm all about, you know. So uh, maybe in true artistic terms, it's a little bit less expressive. It doesn't have the free-flowing style that you are accustomed to seeing with some other artists. But it works for me. Obviously, Kevin likes it, you know. And like I said, why switch if it's successful? Absolutely. Stick with, stick with the sure thing. Well, you've got a cadre of fans out there that agree with you and enjoy and appreciate what you do. So I appreciate you sharing that <laughs> with us. Well, one I- last thought about that, Lane, is with the model kit uh, box art I did over the years, you know, there is that one example where the photorealism actually may be an advantage because you want the piece to look like the model, you know. So. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. You you don't want it to be too expressive. You want it to look like the finished product or pretty close to it. You know, whatever. Be that as it may, that's that's what we are. That's what I'm all about. And uh, I'm too old to change now. (laughs) Don't change. Don't go changing. (laughs) That's what I'm going to (laughs) say. Okay. Well, that's a good lead into another topic I wanted to visit with you about just briefly, because we talked offline about this, and that's the whole idea of colorization. You know, we did visit on that last time we spoke, and since then, Kevin Burns graced us again with another great treat for Lost in Space fans, and that is he released that colorized No Place to Hide pilot on the Blu-ray set for the new Netflix Season 1 series that came out, and Kevin's very proud of that. Why don't you share your thoughts on the whole colorized No Place to Hide pilot? Well, first of all, let's go back to when I found out about it, because it's, it's really kind of weird. During our first podcast interview, we talked about colorization. And I mentioned at that point that, you know, I had discussed it with Kevin and he indicated that it probably wasn't going to happen because of the cost, but that I had continued to see these posts pop up that seemed to indicate that they were still considering this possibility. Then shortly after that, Kevin announces this. And I didn't know, but people thinking were thinking, well, Ron and Kevin are in cahoots here. He knew all about it all the time. Well, I didn't. I was at a Walmart store and checking my phone when I saw this news item come up <laughs> I clicked it on and there it was. You know, I don't actually talk to Kevin all that much. I'm not one of these guys who requires constant reinforcement. I just want to do my job. And uh, now when he calls me, which is, you know, every now and then, it makes my day because he's the boss and he's always got something interesting to say. And uh, uh, it's usually complimentary. And uh, those are great moments. So, no, I did not know about this. But what a pleasant surprise it was, you know. Now, what do I think about it? Well, I gave you my opinion on, on the first interview of what I thought about colorization in general. And I said, if I remember correctly, I'm, I'm adamantly in favor of it, okay? Right. Uh, because of the fact that you want to be able to uh, perpetuate interest in the show for ongoing generations. There just isn't any other way to do it. I mean, you know, I have a young niece who won't watch black and white. She calls it gray and white, you know? Mm. <laughs> uh, so there you go. So if for no other reason, it's a great idea. Now, let's talk about the quality. Uh, and let me preface this by saying, when I saw the, the colorized result of the unearthed pilot, I came away thinking that it was the single best example of colorization I'd ever seen. Because the attention to detail, Wayne, I mean, uh, the detail is incredible. You know, somebody who knew the colors was in charge of this. I'm sure it was Kevin had a hand in it. I also noticed that Derek's uh, name is on the end of the closing credits. So they were involved in this every step of the way. So the basic colors are all pretty accurate. Now, you know, what's missing with colorization? If I were asked to describe what I think is missing based on the people who criticize colorization. Okay, I'll I'll tell you what I think it is. I'll quantify it for you, if you will. Sure. Uh, It's something that I call dynamic reflective color. That's not there. And let me explain what that is. Let's suppose we have a scene inside of a cave, a dark, murky cave, like we see in the, the second season episode called Ghost Planet, when Dr. Smith emerges from the shadows and you see these blue reflections on his face that reflect the surroundings. You know, that type of thing's not in there. Because yeah. with colorization, the algorithm probably calls for filling in a certain bordered area with one color. You know, probably that's the limitation of, of the process right now. And I don't know enough about that process to be firmly authoritative on that. But my guess would be that that is probably what's going on. Now, think about what it would cost to uh, expand this further to include that kind of dynamic color reflection. Cost would probably be through the roof if it's even possible at this point. Right. And Kevin and, and his partner, John Joshney, apparently paid for this first one to be produced. So, look, we got a great result out of this. It doesn't include everything, but boy, it sure includes a lot. So that's what I feel is missing. And let me give you some other examples of this kind of dynamic reflective coloring in still images. I'll point to some of my artwork, for example. When I did the derelict piece, 
Uh, I called my buddy Mark Myers, and I wanted a photo of one of his buildups to serve as a basis for this thing. Sure. He said to me, well, what are you going to do with it color-wise? And I said, uh, well, it's, uh, other people have represented this thing as green because the prop did show up in a second season episode called Wreck of the Robot where it was green. My theory there is that it was painted for that episode. I don't think it was really green and, and the derelict at all, you know. Yeah. So I said to him, what I'll probably do is put a bunch of space phenomena in the background of different colors and reflect those colors off of the body of the ship. And that's exactly what I did. Okay. So you'll see the reds and the, and the greens and uh-huh. the, you know, the blues and all that stuff reflected. And that's, artistically speaking, that's what you should do. So also another one I did recently was the, I already mentioned this piece, the Keeper versus uh, or collaborating with the uh, invaders from the fifth dimension. And I show these kind of blue shadows on the Keeper's face as if he's emerging from that kind of same murky background that I described in the episode Ghost Planet. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And this is the kind of thing you don't see too much of that in colorization. One scene that would scream out for it would be uh, the scene in the Lost City, Dead City Ruins, for example. But they were clever about that. Uh, they didn't include too much blue or any other color in the background. They simply uh, used grays and browns, and you know, so it looks very natural. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll also say this about that particular scene. They have different colors for the columns versus the floor, different colors for the rocks on the floor. I mean, this, there's really attention to detail here. There really is, you know. Yeah. Uh, there are other ways to uh, make it look right, even if you don't have all the uh, tools at your disposal to make it look like it was actually filmed in color. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. They probably were able to cover for some of that by using earth tones versus primary colors, because that would sort of give it away. Because the earth tones would tend to blend a little bit better, I guess, if there was some of that dynamic reflection would blend a little bit better with flesh tones on the face, for example. Exactly. Yeah. Take a look at some of the scenes that were outdoor scenes or scenes that were intended to be outdoor scenes, maybe shot in a studio, but lit in such a way that it was intended to look like an outdoor scene, like Maureen with the uh, washing apparatus. All right. That's perfect because there's no dynamic reflection required there. That looks like it was filmed in color. It's beautiful, you know, and the scenes in the chariot and the sea at the end are just beautiful, breathtaking, in my opinion. Yeah, you're, so, you're absolutely correct about the attention to detail. As a matter of fact, Kevin Burns, I, I had the chance to interview him again recently. You may have heard that one. And he commented yep. on the fact that even with the cast uniforms, when they had done their first run through, they hadn't picked up on some piping that was on Bill Mooney's costume. That was that was pretty interesting that they went to that level of detail. But You know, I, Lane, i got to be honest with you. I noticed that, too. Somebody posted a still frame of uh, the scene with Bill, and I noticed the striping was missing. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> then, then I hear Kevin mention it on the, on his re- recent interview with you, and I thought, man, they are on this thing, man. Spot on. <laughs> they are on it with every detail, and that is so cool. You know. But, but I do have one little bone to pick with him, and I suspect this was an artistic decision. When you got to the very end, and you had those two... <laughs> Those two aliens that we're both so curious about. I was a little... I was going, hmm. Now, I've seen Ron's version of those aliens, and they're not wearing... I think it was red and blue. Am I I off base here? What's... Did you pick up... Well, you know, I... I'm reluctant to offer any kind of criticism, but I tend to agree with Elaine. I mean, uh, and again, this is a purely subjective call because, you know, nobody knows what color the uh, costumes were. I described that during our first interview. I actually wrote to Bill and asked him if he remembered. He said he didn't. And I did some research and I found that there was a yellow-green notation on uh, one of the pieces of preliminary artwork that Paul Zastanavich did. So I went with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm-hmm. As far as the coloring of the heads and the faces, well, that should have been a no-brainer because it's the same makeup from Invaders from the Fifth Dimension, and there are actually color stills from that episode. 
Right. So it was right. kind of a whitish. They made it. They made it a little bit more blue, but that's okay. I mean, that's okay. Yeah. Oh, overall, look, it has a has a great look, and, and this leads me to another subject, by the way. So it, that particular scene is not quite the way I would have done it, but it's an example of something else I'll, I'll describe briefly, and that is that colorization for its few limitations does offer opportunities for creativity. For example, the uh, orange sky during the scene when they're uh, encamped right before the uh, oh yeah they hit the cave you know yeah. i would never have thought of that you know but it, it's a cool effect a sunset sort of uh, situation you know right uh, so colorization allows you certain creative choices if you will that conventional color uh, wouldn't, wouldn't allow unless you went in there and modified it of course so i thought that was a very good use of the uh, current technique as it is it is so yeah I, I i tend to agree with you with the aliens but you know they exercise their creative choice on that and i've done enough of that myself with my artwork so who am i to criticize right oh yeah well i just wanted to mention that it's not a <laughs> it's not a hard <laughs> it's it's not a hard critique but you know kevin did mention his dream is to do the first five episodes and as we had discussed you know he's got a good bit of that work already done with colorizing no place to hide so gosh i hope we get to see that you know, it's funny. I maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to mention this. I've talked to Kevin about colorization over the years a few times, and one of my suggestions at one point was just do the pilot. And he said to me, "That's the last thing I would ever do because it's not related to the series." Mm. And so when I we did our first interview, I mentioned doing the first five because I thought that the pilot was out the window, right? Right. So then he comes up, he's doing the pilot. So whatever, something changed along the lines there. And I think it, it might have been basically what you just said, Lane, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, much of the first five episodes is done with the pilot being colorized. So there's a cost savings going forward there. That makes sense to me anyway, assuming that uh, they can find the, the funds and resources to, to do the uh, the first five, which I absolutely eagerly anticipate. And while I think of this too, one more thought about the last topic we covered uh, with colorization, detail. Let's talk about the scene with Will Robinson shooting the giant. With all gray tones, he gets lost in that scene. You really can't see him. You know, when he starts to move, you can see where the figure is. But yeah. with the blue costume uh, wardrobe against the uh, reddish-brown rocks, now you can see him. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, and also the uh, the water at the end of the very last scene where the aliens pop up in the lower left-hand corner. I didn't know there was water there before. You sure know it now. Absolutely. So Absolutely. colorization has a, a myriad of benefits, in my opinion, for its few deficiencies. And, you know, I was reluctant to describe those in detail because uh, I don't want people saying, aha, that's, you know, that's what I thought I had noticed all along. You just confirmed it. Well, I confirmed it, but I'm also qualifying in such a way as, as to say it's not that big of a deal. It really isn't. Right. When you consider the, the benefits that you get, the net benefits with a, a good quality colorization versus what you don't have from having the, the piece filmed in color in the first place, I think the advantages far outweigh the uh, any issues there. So. Mm. Well, Kurt and I both have come a long way on this topic since we first started the podcast, and we're firmly on board with the whole project of colorization. I'd, I'd love to see the entire first season honestly <laughs> colorized for the reasons you mentioned. I think it would be a great way to help perpetuate interest in the series because we're not going to be around forever. That's old hardcore <laughs> fans. That's we right. Want, we want this series as great as it is to live on. So wonderful. Well, you two guys are examples of people who came around for the benefit of the property. And I, I want to emphasize that. There are a lot of people uh, who are don't like colorization necessarily, but will acknowledge the, the fact that, you know, this is good for the long-term health of the property. That's fine. I mean, you cannot like colorization yet appreciate what it can offer and support it on that level. That's fine. It's the people who are adamantly against it in any way, shape, or form for any reason I have a hard time with. I just don't get that. 
you know, because we're not taking the original away from you for crying out loud, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And part of it too, for me, I have to say was, I was not all that impressed with previous colorizations that I've seen. And this one, this one is just so technically superior to anything I've ever seen before. Although I was on board with it even before I saw it after thinking about it, because we do value the property. So that's a great discussion. With Kevin and his uh, process of uh, his means of doing things and uh, the criteria that he must employ, I I wouldn't have expected anything less than this because he's a perfectionist. Amen. And we're so lucky to have him in charge of the properties. So, my God, he's willing to pay for a lot of this stuff out of his own pocket. I mean, who else would do that? This guy loves this property, and, and so do we. And uh, that's why it's such an honor for me to be involved at this level and be able to offer my artwork in a very humble way that I do, and uh, hopefully that'll go on for a while. Hmm. Hear, hear. Well, before we close out, I just want to remind everybody, Ron, that you have a fabulous website, outerportals.com, I believe it is. We talked about it briefly, I think, on the first interview, but that is really such a cool website. I've never seen anything quite like it. Is there something inspiring this you might want to share with the listeners? Yeah, I I, I guess I could do that. Let me say this. There are two science fiction themes as a kid that I was always enthralled with. One of them has to do with the concept of the cerebral aliens, if you will, as exemplified by the invaders from the fifth dimension, the pilot aliens, the Vians on Star Trek, the Telosians, even the uh, the granddaddy of them all episode of the other one that's called The Sixth Finger, which I did a painting of way back in 74 when I was still in college. It's huge three by four foot monstrosity that still hangs in one of the rooms in my house today. Uh, so that wasn't exactly an alien, but it was you know, along the same line. So that has always been something that, I, that caught my attention uh, and the other one is the idea of going into other realms through a portal. Okay, mm. there are various examples of that, of course, in science fiction. Um, people think when they first see my website, well, it's kind of a takeoff on uh, Star Trek: City on the Edge of Forever, and I, I guess mm. it is in a way, but it's not what I was thinking about. Okay, what I had in mind when I designed this website was an episode of The Twilight Zone. I think it was the third season, an episode called Little Girl Lost. Mm. And this is a really cool atmospheric episode where she uh, is in bed, uh, rolls off the bed, and then gets sucked into this alternate dimension uh, against the, the back wall. And they have a physicist come in and, and draw the graph of where how big the portal is, you know. And the first time you see the, his hand go through it, and this uh, classic Bernard Herrmann music score written specifically for that episode, by the way. Mm. Is enough to really give you shivers. I mean, it just it had a lasting impression on me. Uh, and of course, uh, when the guy, when the father goes into the this realm to retrieve his daughter and the dog, um, that's all Hollywood, you know. Right. But the fact is, outside of that, this episode is supposedly based on a true story. Oh, I you know? yeah. did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, and you can kind of tell from. Uh, Rod Serling's ending narration when he, he talked about uh, a battery of uh, scientists and equipment and no result was ever achieved. It has a different ring to it than some of his other ending narrations, you know, mm-hmm. as if this really happened. So what, for whatever reason, in 63, how old was I at the time? I was, I guess, nine years old. That had a profound effect on me. Just gave me the creeps. <laughs> yeah. uh, also about the time that The Sixth Finger on Outer Limits aired, by the way, they were you know, very close together. So those two things had a profound effect on me and, are, and had an influence on uh, my style and my artwork ever since. That's great. Well, I do remember that episode, and that is a very atmospheric, and it does have the creep vibe <laughs> on level oh my 10. God. I mean, it's a great one. So that stuck with you, and I appreciate you explaining that, because I figured there was a background story to your website. It's a great one, and people should well, check it, it out. Website itself is nothing but a simple GoDaddy template, but I, you know, I wanted to make it kind of special, so I did my own thing with it, and uh, 
and this is what we have. So Awesome. Well, everybody should go visit OuterPortals.com to check out Ron's fantastic artwork, his calendars, and coming down the pike will be that Lost in Space trading card set. So you're very prolific, Ron. Is there anything specifically you'd like to talk about that's next for you, or are you taking a break after all this work with the card set? <laughs> I think I'll take a little bit of a break. Um, not to say that I'm slowing down uh... By the way, I noticed just this morning, Lane, before we got together for this recording that you ordered a calendar. Thank you very much. I'll get it right out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was remiss. I was behind schedule, and I thought, yes, got to get my copy before you run out, because they do sell out, guys. Oh, yeah. 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 So uh, as far as what I'm doing, um, I do have some plans uh, down the road. I have another big project in mind that I really can't talk about it because I haven't cleared it with Kevin and Derek yet, so I would be uh, negligent to bring it up now, but let's just say that I have something in mind that may be on the same level as the card set. Mm. Uh, you know, there's going to be a day, I'm sure, when uh, I'm going to run out of ideas uh, and or Kevin and Derek will get tired of putting up with me and this will come to an end. But but for right now, I still feel like I have a lot left in me. And uh, as long as I can create new ideas that I think are interesting and people will appreciate, we're going to keep going along the same lines. And But only after a break, because this card set did kind of take it all out of me. All right. Well, you deserve a rest, and we'll stand by eagerly for future announcements and check all that out on OuterPortals.com. And as I said before, when we get closer to the release date of the card set, Kurt and I will be talking about that. You won't be able to miss it, folks, so don't worry about that. But I guess at this time, Ron, I'll say thanks for everything you do, and thanks so much for being generous with your time and joining us again on Alpha Control. As always, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. You had a lot of great news to break, so... Thank you. Well, hopefully again. I didn't ramble on too much. I, have a, I know I have a way of doing that. And I'll apologize for that. I do tend to ramble when I get all excited about something, but, yeah. but that's all part of the passion, people, you know. So uh, I'm sure people understand that. But Absolutely. The pleasure is all mine, Lane. I, it's, I love what you guys do. You and Kurt do a great job with the podcast. You're a great team, uh, and I uh, hope that goes on for a long time, too. Thank you so much. It's really great to catch up with you, Ron. You take care now. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was a blast talking with artist Ron Gross again. I can't wait to get my hands on his new Lost in Space trading cards and find out what he has up his sleeve next. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.